Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. These are the teachings from our Sunday gatherings. We are supported by listeners like you who find value in the mission of discipleship. If you'd like to give financially, check out our website, our Instagram, or our Facebook for the giving tab. And thank you for partnering with us and keeping the mission alive. Grace and peace to you. And the passage this week uh, gets into some authority. Would like what is authority and what's that all about? Um, but before we do that, I want to just mention kind of the random maybe off-tangent title that I gave this, because you might not know who this guy is, but um, do you guys know who Sir Edmund Hillary is? I've used this illustration before, maybe it's fresh or new to you guys, but um, so Sir Edmund Hillary is uh, the first one to summit Everest, all right? Does that sound familiar now? A little bit, right? Yeah, we're like, oh yeah, Sir Edmund Hillary, I just... You know your, uh, your Everest stats and your, the, the info on that one. Uh, but he's the first one to do it. And um, he climbed it with this guy who was his Sherpa, who was Tenzing Norgay. And you're going to find out why he's so important here in a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit. Um, but um, Tenzing Norgay is a Sherpa, which is someone who helps someone get to the top. When you climb Everest, um, apparently back in the day, now a lot of people have done it. If you got lots of money, you can pretty much do anything, I guess, these days. But um, no, if you train hard, you have a good crew around you, you can, you can make Everest, I guess, apparently now, way easier than it was when these guys did it. Um, but uh, Sir Edmund Hillary hired Tenzing Norgay to be his Sherpa. And Sherpas are local in that area. Their bodies have adapted to climbing in high elevation, and it just, it doesn't come super easy, but it's a lot easier for them. They are just like, and so guys like Sir Edmund Hillary, who had money, um, would hire Sherpas to help carry packs, to do the journey in these different um, legs of the, the hike and the climb. And, um, and so Tenzing was a Sherpa that helped him get to the top. And, um, the, the whole idea of a Sherpa just really intrigues me. The idea of somebody that is doing everything in their power and their strength to help someone else get to the top of the mountain, to achieve what they're doing. I just, I love that analogy. A good friend of mine, um, his, him and his dad, they grew up hiking together and his dad would always call him Tenzing because he was like, he just wanted to instill in him this idea of being um, like a servant, Right? And just persevering and pushing on because at, at times when my buddy was young, he was like, I just don't want to hike anymore and I don't want to keep going. And he would just like have this little nickname for him. His dad was always like, all right, Tenzing, keep going, you know, like you got to keep me going. I got to make it so I can get to the top. And so he just always was encouraged by that. And so I've always loved that analogy. Um, and I think it ties in well with what we're going we're to talk about today. But um, an interesting thing about that whole climb was that um, Tenzing really ultimately was the one who got Sir Edmund Hilly to the top, right? Like he had the experience, the ability, um, but they both considered it a team effort. And they both considered it as something that like each one brought something valuable to the table in achieving something that they couldn't on their own. And um, there's even a part where I think the day before or days before this climb, um, Tenzing saved uh, Sir Edmund Hilly's life as he fell into one of these uh, like ice crevices, I guess. Um, and so there's so much that they owed each other, 
in making it happen and achieving this like amazing accomplishment. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting was that um, Sir Edmund Hillary could have taken all the credit as the one who's like financing what's happening there, right? But uh, one of the things that you see is him constantly just saying this was a team effort. Like, we did this together. We achieved this amazing feat together. And, um, and I, there's, like, so many layers to it, but even just the idea of, like, when you search, uh, you know, who's the first to summit Everest, it's Sir Edmund Hillary. Um, and then it says Tenzing Norgay. Um, and sometimes in serving and doing things, you won't always get the full credit for what's happening, Right even though you may have done a lot of what it took to get there. Um, but this whole idea of Sherpa and who Tenzing is, the way that he lived his life serving and helping and um, just that model of achieving something great and helping others achieve that is just so beautiful. And so I just want to use that as kind of like a backdrop as we read this passage. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 21. And it starts out with a challenge where um, Jesus is just kind of called out. All right, and so it starts out, verse 23. Did I, oh, I did throw him in there, cool. Uh, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the, uh, the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. Who gave you this authority? And authority in the, that day was very crucial, right? Like, if you don't have the backing to say or do what you're doing, then people doubted you, and they're like, you're just either making this all up, um, or, um, yeah, you're just, you're a fraud. And so, basically, what Jesus starts to do is have this conversation. So, he goes on and says, Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. This is famous in rabbinical culture, just to, like, answer a question with a question, right? Um, that's kind of annoying to us in our culture. We're like, no, just answer the question. Be straightforward with me. And get to the point. But their idea was that like, by questioning, you create dialogue and you create a process of thinking and reasoning rather than just, let me feed you the answer and then you don't really know why, right? So what Jesus does here is beautiful. Uh, it's brilliant. So I'll ask you a question. If you answer me, I will tell you what authority I'm doing this. So we get to the answer in a little bit, but through a process. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. They saw that what John was doing was legit, that it was like, you can't, you can't argue this. Um, there's miracles that were taking place. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know, Right? So because of their pride, they weren't able to answer the question straightforward and just say, here's what we got, um, here's what we think we see, because it confronted their authority, their leadership in that time. Um, and then it goes on, and he says, then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things, because basically they just weren't really to have a, willing to have an honest conversation. So then he goes on, and he tells this parable, super short, check this out. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. There was a mind change. There was a shift that happens where it was like, Oh, maybe I should work. That's probably a good choice. Like, f follow what um, my dad says. 
Uh, I will not. So then the father went to the other son and said to to him the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. He didn't follow through with it. Which of the two did what the father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So this this conversation is interesting because they don't, the, the chief priests, the leaders of that time, didn't want to hear what Jesus was bringing to the table, didn't want to receive it, didn't want to truly engage it. And basically just want to challenge what Jesus was doing. So the question here is, why does their pride hold them back from really wanting to grow and learn? Um, And then the deeper question is, who has authority in today's culture? When you think about authority, because we're going to use the same dialogue that they had 2,000 years ago, we can kind of have it today. Where does authority come from? Like, where do we find authority? Who do we respect as somebody who has um, insights into living life the best possible way? Who do we look to? I guess we can start to, like, ask some questions to kind of unpack that a little bit of, like, what does our culture look to? And I started thinking about it and looking around and kind of watching some of the things in my own life where I've, I think, listened to people that I thought had authority for various reasons. Um, And as we look at our culture, people will listen to a person because they're funny, right? People listen to comedians. Um, If you're on social media, you can see if a comedian says something, sometimes it'll have weight. And sometimes people will, I think, stake life on it, abide by it, use it somehow in their life, even if it's done in a way that uses sarcasm, humor, or kind of a roundabout way of saying something, right? Um, just think about like Chris Rock back in the day or all these different people that like will call out culture. I and mean, people will listen to it and go, yeah, that's a good point. You make a valid point. It's very funny, but it's a good point. So do they have authority? I'm just asking you the question to kind of think about it. People will listen to people because they're rich. So people with a lot of wealth in our culture a lot of times will have influence or authority because of the way that they can throw their wealth around, right? Um, and so my question is, does wealth give you authority (laughs) in some ways, right? Um, does wealth bring real authority? Uh, people will listen to a person because they have a PhD in certain areas, uh, certain fields, right? So they'll have a lot of wisdom in one area. So people will listen to that person because of their field of study, spending tons of time researching one topic, one area of life, one area of um, whatever it be. Um, And the focus becomes on that one thing. And so does that give you authority? In some ways, yes, if we were just talking about that one topic. But as we talk about life and as we look at Scripture and we look at our journey with Christ, uh, we have to begin to question, like, where does true authority come from? Where do we get real wisdom? Where do we... How do we begin to really parse out and sort out what is true knowledge that is all-encompassing with all of life? Because we'll get snippets here and there on social media, especially a lot of our news is so short. Like they say, like, 
Um, so much of our news is sound bites rather than deep research that gives you lots of stats and, um, and background to a certain topic. We just hear like a cool sound bite and we're like, oh yeah, I'll take that. And that makes sense. And that's what I'm going to stake my life on. And that's a lot of what our culture begins to uh, be shaped by. And, um, and so I just, I think it's really important to think about authority as we begin to look at this. I know it's not a super, um, like, fun topic to really dig into, but I think authority begins to shape how we engage in our faith um, and how we begin to look at Jesus. Because if we don't believe that he has authority, which is key in what's happening in this conversation, then we're not going to listen, right? Um, and I think that's why our culture does listen to people with humor, with a PhD, with money, um, or some kind of influence. Um, and it, it just, I don't think it does us well. Um, so Jesus evades this very clear answer by answering the question with a question and challenging them to come back with a little bit more um, thought, but they don't do it. Um, what I see in Jesus is the ability to really bring truth in a very powerful way. And I'm going to give you guys just a real short passage that I think sums it up. Um, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You've probably heard this before, right? But when we begin to really look at these three things that Jesus points out, the way of life, right? Um, the truth that's woven into that, the way of actually engaging the world that we live in in a very meaningful way is what he's saying in that very short line. Because it goes on and says, like, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so through Jesus, we begin to experience really the truth of what works and what doesn't work, right? So our culture is telling us all kinds of ways that life works, the best way to live it, how to be successful, how to like really enjoy life the best possible way. But what Jesus says is, I know the truth. I know the deeper thing that you really want, the thing that we really need to engage in, and, and begins to unpack that. And again, like, I just want to take a little further to begin to, like, I think, look at our culture, because we have to really parse out the fact that our culture really does convince us of a lot of things that I don't think are truth, that don't really lead to life. Um, I started doing some research because I've heard some things that I was like, is this true or not? And maybe you guys can confirm or deny after the message and kind of give me some feedback on this one from things you've learned or whatever. But um, we see the highest rate currently um, in our culture, in Western culture, the highest rate of anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicide. And some of you guys might go like, I don't know, like it. I don't know if I fully buy that, but I started researching it, and there is, it's, the consensus is pretty clear. Um, uh, I'm just quoting a psychologist that does a lot of research in this area, Jean Twang, and what she says is there is an overwhelming amount of data from many different sources, and it all points in the same direction, more mental health issues among American young people than ever. More than ever. And so... Should we be listening to our culture? Should we be following what culture says is best for us in the way that we live? Clearly, the culture has been, uh, I guess to use like the gardening analogy again, bearing bad fruit. Like it's not working, right? And I think we just continue pressing on going, well, I don't want to offend anybody and I don't want to have like a con 
contrasting opinion because it, people aren't going to like it. People are going to be offended by what I say about this. And, um, and so I just, I want to have this conversation and begin to unpack a few, like, kind of major examples. I'm glad the kids aren't in here because um, there's some major things in our culture that as I wrestle with it, I go, this is why we have such bad stats and worsening stats on suicide, anxiety, depression, um, addiction. Um, and, it, and it comes from this approach that says just, just you do you. Like it doesn't matter. Like whatever you think works and whatever find, uh, bring, you find brings happiness and joy, whatever in your life, go for it. And I think people are seeing that it's not working. And so in a culture where um, on the topic of like sexual freedom and identity being tied to what brings us joy, I believe that's causing a lot of destruction in people's lives. Um, the need to be fulfilled sexually, I think, leaves people feeling empty, that their life is so built around sexual identity that I believe that it leaves a lot of people really empty. Um, this is kind of random and, well, not random, but uh, very pertinent in our culture. Do you guys know who uh, Dan Belzerian is? Okay, some of you do, some of you don't. He's like the Hugh Hefner of our culture. Um, and this guy prides himself on how many women he slept with. And that, you may say like, well, that's not in our culture, but there's a lot of men in our culture that will like pride themselves on that and say this is like body count is everything, right? And this guy is like, he's taken Hugh Hefner to another level. And this week he responded in a podcast saying, I've chased pleasure more than probably anyone and wealth and says, it's left me empty. He didn't go to the point of like scripture and Jesus and Christianity, but he's the guy who's like the poster child of, I've tried it all. I've done more than you could probably ever dream up and more, and it still leaves me empty and has not brought any joy to my life. I'm like, wow, okay. So all the people in our culture that look up to him on Instagram, I don't recommend Googling or searching all of it, but um, look up to this person as an influence, as a person who has authority, and see that as something that they desire as like, well, if I can be like him, then life will be better. But the guy at the top is saying, it's not better. It's actually a lot worse. It's left me empty, and I just haven't found joy in any of that. And now I'm looking in other places. And my prayer, my hope would be that he starts to begin to look in the spiritual realm, that it's not going to be a physical thing that's going to make you content. Sure, there's parts of that. Like, I'm not going to downplay it and say, like, there's no joy in relationship with, you know, our spouses or whatever. But when we make that our identity, when that becomes the core thing that drives us, I, it's going to let us down. And I see that in our culture um, and too many people with authority are leading people down a really depressing road uh, when we elevate it to that point. Um, yeah, it's just our culture just elevates it, uh, that personal desire to, like, freedom in a way that I just don't think is healthy. Um, and so Jesus speaks to it in a very healthy way. And so just my response to that when we talk about sexual freedom um, is that Jesus' invitation is to have self-control. Uh, this self-sacrificial kind of love that puts others' needs before our own. And I believe that that invitation brings healing not only to ourselves, but other people. And I think people will see that. Um, I see a culture that 
says that we don't objectify people, but it really does. When we prioritize our physical body needs over other people, you're objectifying either yourself or other people. I don't know if that makes sense, but I would just sit with that a little bit longer. But like, I've been really thinking through that. Like, You're objectifying people when they are the object of your joy or even your own body. If your own body is the thing that you just have to like have joy because of like physical needs or being said that you're a certain way. I, I don't think that that's going to fulfill. I think that's very temporary and it doesn't bring freedom. So um, yeah, when we're talking about faith and spiritual practices around sexuality, I believe that it sounds like a very kind of ancient, like oppressive ways for people just to like, um, I think, put restrictions and further the religious institution, right? Like everything, everything in our culture is going to push back and say that what the church is trying to do is just oppressive. What the church is trying to do is keep you from really just enjoying life. And I actually, over the years of being a disciple to Jesus, have discovered that actually it brings more freedom as I begin to surrender my life to Christ that it's not oppressive, that it's not the, in, the religious institution trying to keep me down. Um, sure, there are churches that probably have that, and we are trying to push against that. But what I see is that the spiritual disciplines begin to shape my life in new ways and my identity about, around sexuality in healthy ways that gives me self-control. And I begin to see that and how that shapes my, my daily life, my thought life, my desires into a like, much healthier place. I don't have that fully conquered. That's always a battle that will exist. But I believe that as I begin to do that, it, it's shaped me in really, really good waves. And so, um, waves. Waves are good too. But um, So I see these practices setting us free. And so um, this is why I think Jesus is real and has authority and has power to speak into our lives and transform life because he demonstrates it, it's like the proof is in the pudding, right? The practices prove that it's actually better. And what Jesus did in pushing back, he's like, do you remember what John did? You saw it. And what did he say? What are the two groups that Jesus pointed out? That they have the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Those are two people, like, those are generalities, those are like terms to use a community of people that to sum it up, were people that just didn't care about the religious institution at that time, didn't care about what God was doing because the first off, tax collectors were people that um, disowned their faith, that left the Jewish culture and said, I'm going to work for the government and take taxes from people. And so money was the priority for them. Um, these are generalizations. But then, and then prostitutes were people, again, in that culture that were considered sexually free that just said, we want nothing to do with the religious culture. We're going to, I'm going to tie myself to this identity, sexual identity, right? Um, so I just put AKA the non-religious folk, the people that could care less about Yahweh at the time or God or the church. Um, they just didn't want nothing to do with it. But what Jesus said was like, did you see what happened to them when they encountered John? Transformation. And they were like, and they're trying to scheme and figure out like, well, if we say that John actually did impact the tax collectors and the prostitutes in our community, then we've acknowledged that there's authority in what Jesus is doing. We can't do that. And so naturally they're just like, we're, we're stuck. We're not going to win because either way we lose and we have to give up our identity and religious leader 
whatever authority that they had, um, and now recognize that Jesus has true authority to speak over this, and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to worship Him, right? Um, and so I just, I I just love this passage for what it says about really experiencing freedom and really being able to dig into. I guess what what matters most, because a lot of people will take this conversation and it's like, and and make it about tax collectors, prostitutes, but really what it was about is the religious leaders that weren't willing to humble themselves and say, no, I I care more about what God is doing here than my own agenda. They saw what happened in their lives, they saw the transformation, and they're like, we're going to deny it. And so the passage that I think really... um, captures the posture that Jesus is trying to invite the religious leaders of that time, the chief priests. And the, um, what he's trying to invite them into is this posture of humility. And that's why I used that illustration of Tenzing earlier. And so I'm going to show a passage, and we're going to read it. Uh, this may be a, a total reminder. You may have read this a million times. Um, but when we read Philippians 2, what I see here is the type of person that Jesus is inviting them to that helps them thrive. And it's a little bit of a long passage, but it repeats a lot of the same theme over and over. And I hope that we can just meditate on this for a second and see how it really speaks to that humility. So it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you the interests of others. When I read just that first paragraph, man, I'm like, I got a lot of work to do. I need to surrender my life in big ways because so many times I want my way, my agenda, my thing, right? And to read this is such a beautiful reminder that it's like, that's not about me. It's about us serving one another, loving one another, elevating others above ourselves. And it goes on in verse 5 and says, in your relationships with another, like as you interact with other people, as the church sits and talks together, has meals together, engages in life together, has meaningful conversations, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. I think that's interesting that God, who's flesh and blood, didn't use it to his own advantage, still took the road of humility, not trying to elevate his own agenda, but just saying, no, this, we're going to work on loving people. We're going to work on humility. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Isn't that like the ultimate example of sacrifice? The ultimate example of what it looks like to really surrender life to others? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God uh, the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, 
highlight, underline, circle, my dear friends. Because this is like a plea to like, my dear friends, like the people that I love most, hear me out on this. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like keep persevering into those hard areas of life where the culture says, just let it go and just live life, whatever, like just be free and do your thing. He says like persevere, like work it out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That God has a desire to truly transform us from the inside out and has this purpose of like true meaning, real satisfaction beyond what our culture says. The culture thing isn't working. But when I see this and when I see people that I've seen that have like staked their life on Jesus for decade after decade of faithfulness and persevering and like working out their salvation, I see fruit. I see people that are loving. I see people that are patient, that are like the kind of people that I want to be when I'm older. I guess I'm older, but <laughs> but truly like just the kind of human beings that that just ooze the Jesus kind of life, that humility that I just want that. And it I just don't see it so much in our culture. Um, we're just so numb with so many other things and so distracted by things that just don't deliver. And so going back to the Sherpa, I just see Tenzing as this like model of humility that we see in Jesus that is just unhindered by saying, I just want to put others first. I'm going to use my skills to make sure others make it to the top of the mountain. And I just, I can't like lose that analogy. I just can't drop it. It's like, I can't shake it from my mind because that's what I see Jesus doing is continually pushing us to like achieve the top of the mountain. Sure, it's not like, it's not going to be in the news. It's not going to be like, I don't know. You, our, most of our lives are probably going to be humble, behind the scenes kind of things where we're loving people and doing amazing things for people that you'll never get credit for. Um, the same way Tenzing just didn't get the credit that probably should have been due. Now it's starting to happen because culturally we're starting to be aware of like, no, this is the guy who probably made it happen. But back in the day, like Sir Edmund Hillary was the one that got credit because he had the cash, right? Um, things have shifted. Things have changed. And even in Sir Edmund Hillary, you still see a humility. And one of the interesting things is I saw um, one article that said, uh, let me pull this image up, of this is Tenzing at the peak of Everest because Sir Edmund Hillary took the picture of him, right? He could have easily handed Tenzing the camera and said, take a picture of me, look how rad I am. That's the only picture, that's the first picture of someone on Everest is Tenzing, the guy who helped him, who assisted in getting him to the top. And that's him with his ice pick. Um, and it, to me, that oh, it gives me chills like to think about like that kind of humility, right? Um, it's so beautiful. And I think that that, the Tenzing way, or even the Sir Edmund Hillary way in some ways, um, is a way of humility. It's a way of just elevating others, loving others more than ourselves, giving Jesus that authority in our lives to say, I'm going to just take on your way of living um, because I know it's what's best. Uh, I'm going to close with this thought because I have four minutes. Um, maybe not. I can probably go a little long. But... Um, I've been wrestling with uh, this idea that I heard in a podcast this week that says everything in moderation. How many of you have heard that phrase? 
Everything in moderation. Okay, everyone in the room, raise your hand. So everything in moderation is a, uh, it's Katie and I call it the SGNT. Sounds good, not true. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that from, what was it? Some radio show we used to listen to, but it's always like SGNT. Sounds good, not true. Everything in moderation sounds good. It's again one of those things that culturally, everybody says like, that's got some authority to it. It somehow has some weight. It sounds really good, and like that's what our culture really abides to. But think about that. Take it to its furthest conclusion. Everything in moderation. Everything? Right? Heroin? <laughs> in moderation. Everything in moderation. Um, there are certain things that we don't need in moderation. And I think our culture is one of those things. I don't think we need it in moderation. I don't think that we need to like dabble in what culture thinks we should do uh, and define ourselves when it comes to our sexual identity or when it comes to even our, idea, our identity in who God is. Because people will say, oh, that's just the institutionalized church trying to keep you in shape and in line and trying to like tell you what to do, right? You're going to listen to that ancient Bible scripture stuff that someone dug up somewhere. That's a joke, right? So everything in moderation, like I feel like what that does is it like waters down really where we're at. And I think it even, like when I think about it in my own life, uh, it was from a guy, Justin McRoberts. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but you can look up his podcast. It's great. It's like seven minute nuggets of just, I don't know, just kind of interesting ways to think of life and think about our faith. But um, I believe that what he says uh, brilliantly sums up how we need to approach what Jesus calls us to here, how he engages with these leaders, is not everything in moderation, but begin to seek out everything that we do with attention. Purposeful attention, right? So if you're given an option, a choice in life to do something, give it attention. Not just, well, we'll just do a little bit of that because everything in moderation. Give it the attention it needs because sometimes we need to do a full stop and say, no, I'm not doing that in moderation anymore. Maybe social media, maybe it's just like how I view myself, maybe it's how I treat others. I'm not just going to do that a little bit. I'm going to full stop and I'm going to shift and I'm going to go another direction. I'm going to pivot, as culture says, right? We're going to pivot into a different way. And... Um, and I think that that's just a healthier way that Jesus invites us into to say, I'm going to give full attention to this thing in my life that may need to stop, or maybe I need to do way more of something. So maybe it's spiritual disciplines. Maybe I need to like, maybe I need a Sabbath. I've noticed that in my own life, I haven't been Sabbathing. Like I go, 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 go because I want to produce. I want to like stay true to my word on commitments I've made. And so I don't Sabbath and that's horrible. Like I should be Sabbathing. Like we should be doing that. But that requires attention. It requires a full stop and say, okay, God, you're in control, not me. My identity isn't in my work. I'm not defined by how much I produce. Um, maybe I need to just pull back in certain areas. But that requires very specific attention to something. And so my question to close out, um, and I'm going to throw some questions. I totally forgot to put them on the, the digital bulletin. But... Um, with this question of like, what part of your life needs extra attention this season? Because I think that helps us understand a little bit more about what Jesus is doing there to say they missed the point of being humble, recognizing that they need to love people.
what part of your life needs extra attention in this season? Um, maybe we'll close with a song, yeah? If we close with worship, let's do that. And let's just meditate on that and let's take that into the week. And uh, let me pray over that. Uh, Lord, we just, uh, we want to be consumed by your authority in our lives and give our full attention to you, not just a partial attention, not a, an attention that's been influenced by culture, because um, we just, we recognize that it's just, it's not working, um, but we need to give our full attention to you, Jesus. And so I just want to experience your Holy Spirit this week just to like reveal those areas of my life where I haven't given full attention, areas of my life where I need to put a full stop and begin to shift and turn into another um, way of living. Um, and so help us to really abide by that and begin to see that it bears fruit and it brings freedom. That what you're doing is, is really trying to set us free from these things that, that destroy because um, you've come to give life to the full. And so I just want to really experience that this week. And so I just pray for all of us as we step into uh, this challenge and just really begin beginning to see I guess the areas of life where we need to give full attention to and give, make changes in our lives. So we love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.